Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin plays at an MVP level. When the Pella people left, you had no idea they had been here. You just had the new window. Pay as low as $19 a month per window or $75 per month on patio doors. Visit PellaWI.com today. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us on a rainy Tuesday afternoon. Vince Sotrano, as I was mentioning earlier, I'm going to the baseball game tonight, and hopefully the the Brewers will clinch the NL Central title tonight with a win, not have to worry about that. But I am telling you, for people who are watching us on the YouTube channel, you can go to YouTube.com, put in WTMJ or WTMJ.com streaming. I, I decided today I, I'm rocking the old school look. This is... Yeah, no, very nice. This is see, this is that's it's my favorite logo. It's the ball in glove logo, which I think is kind of old school, classic, and I just I, I think it's it's I they should never have gotten away from that candidly, because I think this is one of the best ones they've got. They've adapted it and sort of modernized it to be their current logo as well. But one of the great things was, you know, I think they paid attention, right? They would see so many people still wearing the old school oh, stuff absolutely. out at the ballpark. Some of those early two thousands uniforms and you had the yeah the I, <laughs> yeah well I, I still feel that way when i see the baby blue uniforms like the robin's egg blue mm-hmm. uniforms it's like yeah i don't think what is so. that the city connect or whatever or whatever yeah. they're calling it exactly so this is if you're watching today or you see me at the ball game tonight it's going to this is the old school the ball and the glove thing yeah, well good things happen with that logo absolutely one of our listeners said is jeff going to be sitting next to front row amy no not, matter of fact this is Actually, this is this is this is the deal. So WTMJ had a bunch of tickets left, so they were kind enough to give me ten tickets. We had this this group, so we have a group of friends going. But we're really, 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 as I was saying, we're about as far down the right field line as you can get and still be in the stadium. So we're we're about as far away from front row Amy as you can be tonight. <laughs> no now, now, on the other hand, um, I, I have a, a season ticket, just a, the two tickets, and because we're going with friends, I'm in the seats way down the way, and. Um, other friends of mine are using my seat, so they are, a couple they, out? they are closer yes. to to front row Amy than it's me. Kind but of no, you. It, well, I didn't have a choice. That was what my this is one of those where my wife said, "Okay, this is what we're going to do with these things." Nice. So I, my answer was those two words that so many husbands say, "Yes, dear." You know? <laughs> I hope we fill it tonight, and I know the Brewers would really like to to have that happen. You know, having Craig Council on Wisconsin's Morning News once a week, we've talked with him the last couple of weeks about it, and it was so good to hear Craig say that. The players realize and, and love when it's a live crowd and when the fans are into it. They feed off of that, and they're excited for that. So I, I hope we can come close to filling that place tonight on a Tuesday. Yeah, with a rainy Tuesday, yeah. too. I don't know. Well, but the thing but is, the chance too, to be there for the confetti and the champagne and all that when we clinch, abs- something out there. Well, absolutely. It, 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 that's what I'm, I'm kind of, again, looking forward to. So I wasn't too upset when they lost those last two games in Florida because I thought, oh, this is kind of cool. You know, now, if they lose tonight, that's a whole different story. But, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to be there and enjoy it. And I think this has been, I think it's really been kind of a special season. I mean, if you if you look at the, the players that the Brewers have played over the course of this year, it, it's not like there's a huge all-star lineup. I mean, it's it's just not. It's like, okay, who is this guy? And you look at how many people they're playing now that weren't on the team, even on the team, 
you know, when the season started. And, you know, they're going to win over 90 games, which is to me always kind of the indicator of a, of a really good season. And it, it shows how good the pitching has been. But I think it's been a kind of special season. You, they certainly, I think they've certainly performed as well, if not better than, um, people expected. Reason for optimism as well because of how young we are and how well our rookies have played this year. And on top of that, speaking of rookies, you know, Matt Arnold uh, in his general manager role in a rookie in that particular spot. I mean, virtually name me almost every lever this guy has pulled has worked out. You pulled a guy, Donaldson, off the scrap heap from New York. And this guy's hitting home runs here oh, yeah. in Milwaukee. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mark Canna was another one. Uh, right. You know, just guys who... Man, Carlos Santana. Yeah, you know, I mean, right? again, they, they've, then they've kind of found their, their way here. It's yeah. working out, man. It is. It is. Just a few more games. Then you get into the playoffs, and then anything can happen. I, okay, this again, one's on you tonight. You all take right. Care all of right. It. And I am also... I, I am rooting. I've said this on the radio before. And actually, it's interesting, because on, uh, on, on Saturday, I was playing golf with... Um, my brother's my brother's girlfriend's son-in-law. Okay, follow that. Not sure what that makes. Yeah, you both, but right. right. Okay, okay, who is? I mean, you you want to talk about a pair to draw to? He's both a Bears fan and a Cubs Oof. fan. Ooh, ooh wow. yeah, exactly. So I mean, I, I, I hope just, he's a good golfer. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 right. Nice, really, so far, not really, real really nice guy. Three okay. wonderful kids, but yeah, Bears fan, Cubs fan. I don't think so. So um, I was trying to explain to him that I I really. I don't want to see the Cubs get the last wild card spot just for, for a number of reasons. But also, I mean, I don't want to go to these, these wild card games with a bunch of Cubs fans because individually, Cubs fans might be wonderful human beings, but collectively, they're a bunch of jerks. I, mean, <laughs> <Right>. just, <laughs> I have no interest in that, that and just. I, I absolutely think we're going to win this next series. I think, you know, I think we're going to be the division champions. I think we're going to win that wild card, you know, series as they call it. I think we can go deep in the playoffs. That said, if we were to lose, I couldn't handle losing to the Cubs in that first series. Could not. Don't need that value added. Yes. Right. But of course, beating the Cubs would be wonderful. Well, there would yeah. be that. It was but, like the Packers right. in the NFC Championship but, down in Chicago. But, that was particularly delicious. Yes, exactly. Okay. So that, that's it. There was, right, we're, we're in agreement on all factors. On, on all those different things. Hopefully they win tonight and they move on. All right. Let us get started. The, um, the, by the way, the stock market again, and Vince, you know, just, just like he doesn't need to do different daily traffic reports about the mess that is on I-43. It, it's almost like recently he doesn't really even need to do like, like stock market updates. Cause all you can say is the stock market is in the tank once again. I mean, relentless, relentless losing the, uh, Dow Jones, it's been a, an awful couple months. If you look at the numbers, the stock market really has been flat for the last four years. I mean, it's been flat since the start of the pandemic. And um, today, NASDAQ down another 1%, the Dow down almost another 1%. And if people wonder why there, there's not a lot of confidence in the economy, that is certainly one of the factors. Okay, here's the background on what is going on. Over the weekend, ABC News and The Washington Post came out with a a poll, head-to-head matchup, Joe Biden, Donald Trump. Okay, Donald Trump, who is facing indictments in four different jurisdictions. The ABC News Washington Post poll has Donald Trump crushing Joe Biden 51 to 42. Now, I said this yesterday, I don't think I have ever, ever, 
ever in all my years that I've watched politics seen a report where it's ABC News and it's the Washington Post who've done the poll, and they come out and they say, well, th- th- this is what our poll shows, but we don't believe it. <laughs> you know, we, we think our own poll is an outlier. Huh, I've just never seen it. And it may very well be an outlier, but there's no question that Joe Biden is in a lot of trouble. His approval rating is at mid-30s. And that's pretty consistent across across polls. And people have a lot of concerns. The economy has been crummy. I don't think people believe that he can, you know, turn this around. You've got all the crises at the border that's going on. You've got just the, the underlying concern. I know whenever I say this, one or two people say, oh, you're just being ageist. He's just too damn old. And and everybody, I think, understands that that, that is, is the case. But yet he's, he's hanging on. But anyhow, you have Biden, who is desperate to try to turn things around, which brings the story. As we speak, the president is in Michigan, and he has for the, I believe, at least this is what experts are saying, for the first time in the nation's history, Joe Biden has gone on a picket line, and he is... Standing on a picket line right now, he's fist bumping people um, at a UAW picket line today, which is the 12th day of the UAW strike. No president in American history, no sitting president has ever done this. Now, you, you had certain very, very pro uh, presidents, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, um, who um certainly did things to express solidarity with labor movements, but nobody has ever had the, nobody has ever gone to a a picket line. Now, what's interesting about this is yesterday when they were asking Biden's press secretary about this, that the reporter's questions were, okay, first of all, do you really think it's in the interest of the president of the United States to take sides in this particular dispute? Uh, Well, humana humana. Do you think, does the president um, support a 40% wage increase for UAW workers? Does the president support full-time 40-hour pay and a 32-hour work week? And there are all these questions. The press secretary, you know, wasn't able to answer them. Joe Biden, with awful, awful poll numbers, you know, really in, in a huge rut and in huge electoral problems, He's now decided he's going to, and he is, you know, saying hi to workers on this picket line. So he's injecting himself into the middle of this auto workers strike, and he's injecting it on the side of the union. Now, Ford and a number of the companies say, if we gave in to what the union wants, Forget about us being able to fund electric vehicles. That that money would be gone. And in some cases, we may be looking at monster layoffs or bankruptcy in the next three or four years. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. What one word, and you only get one, give me one word that you think describes Biden's decision to become the first sitting president to join a picket line. 855-616-1620, that's the old National Bank talk and text line. What one word would you use? I have a word. I'm curious what yours is. We'll discuss in just a moment. Here's the way the Chicago Tribune describes this. 
And they, they're quoting a professor and an expert on U.S. labor history from University of Rhode Island. This is absolutely unprecedented. No president has ever walked a picket line before. Presidents historically avoid direct participation in strikes. They typically see themselves more as mediators. They do not see it as their place to directly intervene in a strike or in a labor action, which is historically why they've done it. So Joe Biden, he decides to go against president. He decides to show up for a brief appearance on a picket line. What's my one word? Pathetic. This is a new low. It is absolutely pathetic that the leader of the free world decides to intervene in this fashion. And again, you, you know, you also, you, you could put, you could say boneheaded on top of this because he's now, like I was saying earlier, he's opening himself up to all these questions. Okay. You know, you're, you're now on, you've come down on the side of the UAW because you're pandering for votes. You know, if you have any chance of being reelected, you've got to have this union support. So th- this is, you're trying to show this, but then you open yourself up to questions. All right. What, what about, do you think they should get the 40% raise? And if so, you know, how, how is that going to pay, be paid for? You think that they should be paid for five days work and only working four. Is that your new standard? Are you so desperate and so pathetic to try to, again, get union votes to get yourself reelected that you are willing to further tank the economy? Cause, you know, that's, that's essentially what you're going to do to productivity. If now the new standard is going to be people don't have to work 40 hours anymore. You get full time pay for 32. Um, let's see, let me, we, we've been, we've been swamped. Jeff, if the demands are met, the price of American automobiles will increase even more that no one will be able to afford them. Um, this would be good news for foreign automakers. No, there's, there's no question about that. This is the, the ultimate beneficiaries of this strike are, are going to be Toyota and Honda and Nissan and Tesla. I mean, that's, that's who's going to, um, make this. Um, all right. Let's see. Um, desperate is the word. Uh, grandstanding. Well, I don't have any issue with that. Bonehead. Yeah, that word kind of came up. Um, let's say uh, 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 short-sighted. Yeah, we'll put a hyphen in there. That would end up working um, in that regard. Clueless. Unaware. Um <laughs> Let's see. It's a strike against him. Well, that's multiple words. Um, uh, let's see. Unethical. Well, I don't know if it's a matter of ethics. It's just a choice that no president has ever made before in American history. Um, Jeff, I think it's confused. Well, there's that. Jeff, I think it's unbelievable. All right. Here's the fresh thing. One word. Refreshing. Um, one word refreshing. And I'm pretty sure Reagan took the side in a labor dispute when he fired all the aircraft traffic controllers. So it's not historic after. No, 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 no. That's completely different. This was government workers, again, violating the law by going out on strike. This is a dispute in a private matter. It's the private sector. And no, no president has ever walked the picket lines before. Um, Jeff, desperate. I believe for a long time that Biden doesn't make a lot of decisions. I heard Trump is supposedly getting involved in the strike somehow, too. Yeah, Trump, in an effort to upstage the Republican debate that's going to be held in California at the Reagan Library tomorrow night, Trump is going to be giving a, a speech in Michigan in front of unions. Um, now, Trump, of course, is former president. He's not the sitting president, but 
Yeah, it's it's Trump. Uh, let's see, Jeff. My word would be greedy. Another person uses the word pandering. Another person uses the word thoughtless. Votes, um, votes is one. I mean, that's of course what this is all about. Um, foolish as well, and the list goes on and on. Desperate. I'm going to go with the word. Um, I'm going to go again with the word pathetic. This is just one of these efforts to try to pander for votes. And candidly, I'm not sure it's necessarily even going to work. But if it prolongs the strike, it is a bad thing. If it makes a settlement harder, it is a bad thing. If it creates an even greater disruption to the economy, it is a dreadful thing. As if the Biden economy doesn't have enough problems. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Well, it's going to be curious to see how this plays out. This was clearly a political stunt, which was designed to try to shore up support. My guess is, just like so many decisions that Joe Biden has made, it's not not going to work. But again, time will tell. But uh, coming down on the side of, of one side in a private labor dispute, it is... It is unprecedented for people who think um, it's awesome. That's it. Now, the question I'm getting is, well, what about Trump doing this? Look, I don't explain Donald Trump. I'm not a Trump guy. And, I mean, to me, Trump is, I don't know if he's coming down. It'll be interesting to see. He's not walking a picket line. I don't know what position Trump is going to ultimately take. But um, and, and we'll have to wait till the speech to see it. But Trump is just, again, trying to... I've, if you'd use the word one word for Donald Trump, it would be opportunist. And and that's what he's doing. He's going to Michigan because he wants to upstage the seven Republicans who are going to be on the debate stage uh, tomorrow night. So my, my word, even without knowing what Trump's speech is going to be, would be opportunist for him. All right. Let us switch gears. I want to revisit something we, we discussed in a segment last week. Uh, what happens is that a lot of the media is derivative. They'll be, and, and I see this because I, I read I read lots of stuff online, whether it's you know, TV station, you know, websites or newspaper websites or things like that. And what typically happens is you'll see one, one newspaper ends up coming up with a concept and they'll write a story. And then interestingly, you know, a week later, you see variations of that premise that, that appear in different stories. The Wall Street Journal last week had a piece and, and the essence of it was workers don't want to hear their coworkers complaining about having to start paying their student loans. I mean, that was the nature of the topic. And I think we did one one segment on it. But the basic principle was, you know, pe- people just don't want to hear this, you know, for for a variety of reasons. You know, people who didn't go to who, who went to a second choice school because it was cheaper don't want to hear about somebody who made a decision to go to a more expensive school and um, you know, complaining about their student loans that they haven't had to make payments on for a number of months. People don't want to people who you know made sacrifice and have paid back their student loans. They don't want to hear about somebody complaining about this. So, you know, we discussed that and that was the premise. So in the local newspaper today, again, I think picking up on this story that was out there in The Wall Street Journal a week ago, Wisconsin student loan payments, Wisconsin student loans, readers share how payments are impacting them. 
And so what had happened is the local newspaper, you know, and USA Today asked readers about their upcoming student loan payments because student loans are finally after, what, three or four years now starting to resume. And they said, we asked them to share how their student loan payments will impact their life and if they'll need a second or third job to pay bills. Nothing like kind of loaded questions. More than a dozen readers responded. Interestingly, my thing would be only a dozen readers responded, but but that's okay. This is it. Most of the respondents live in the Milwaukee suburbs. Here's what they said. So that they say, all right, we want some input as to how this is going to impact on you. They get a, a handful of responses, but it turns into a story. Headline, several readers say they won't be able to save for emergencies or retirement. Quote, student loans stop me from continuing my education and doing things that positively impact me. It's also been terrible for my mental health, says one person. One reader says she has fallen behind on retirement savings, thanks to substantial monthly loan payments. Others said they'll have to work several jobs or move in with their family to afford payments. One reader commentator said they worked two jobs for several years just to make ends meet. Quote, I worked full time and had to move back in with my parents because I couldn't afford rent and my student loan payments as well as my other monthly dues. So <clears throat> they couldn't afford rent because of the student loan payments. Um, somebody else says, I don't regret going to college, but I regret how naive I was about paying for school. One reader said that they would have tried trade school or went for an associate's degree, but their mother, quote, forced them to go to a four-year college program immediately after high school and take out loans to pay for it. <laughs> okay, it's it's mom's fault. Mom made me go to college, and mom made me take out the loan. So this is the premise. You know, you get about a dozen people that call in, and the, the complaints are everything from my mental health is terrible. It's stopping me from doing things that positively impact me. I don't know what that means. No trip to Hawaii in the future. One reader fallen behind on retirement savings. Somebody else says, well, I can't pay rent and my student loans, so I'm thinking about having to move back in with mom and dad. 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay. Are you crying these people a river? Do you feel sorry about this? Is uh, My God, the, the mom, mom made me take out that student loan and go to the four-year uh, university. Mom uh, did it. Um, I, I can't save as much for my retirement because I have to pay off th- this particular loan. Um, I can't do things that positively impact me. It's terrible for my mental health. All right. You feeling any sympathy for these people who took out student loans, who've had a moratorium on paying the student loans for several years now? Interest has not been accumulating. So essentially they've gotten a free ride for the last three or four years. And now it's coming again time to pay the piper. And they're, they're complaining about it. Are you feeling bad for them? Mom made me take out that loan. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line we discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. See, I I, I just, this is another one of these examples where I, I think 
the, the Biden administration just badly misreads general public sentiment with this idea that we are going to, I don't know, um, give people excuses for not paying back loans. And, of course, you, this is the latest thing. Well, now you have to start paying back your student loans or resume paying them back, and, and people are supposed to be feel sorry about this. I mean, gee, it's it's been terrible for my mental health. Gee, I, I, I don't know. You know, we, we all have to make mortgage payments. You have to pay off your credit card debt, or you have to make your car payments, or, you know, every month you get that bill from the cable company or from the phone company or whatever. Oh, this is terribly mentally stressful. Well, this is just another one of the debts. Uh, here's one of our texters, Jeff. No sympathy for me. Last month, we paid my student, husband's student loan off, 18 years. And yes, we continue to pay these last few years that we didn't have to. My daughter starts college in the fall of 2024. We will help, but she will also pay her loans. You know, I've used this example before. You know, one of one of my teammates, oh, it's my producer, Samantha. She has student loans. She continued to make payments during the the pause, and as a result of that, you know, she was able to lower the principal on on her loan. And and I'm sure I have no doubt that for everybody who continued to make these payments, you know, some people might view you as chumps. Oh, hey, why did you make these payments? Well, what it was was, you know, you you don't you know you could have taken this money and you could have gone out, or you could have taken this money and bought a nicer car, or you could have taken this money and gone on a trip or whatever. But instead, you sent it to help pay down your student loans. Well, no, it's because this is the fiscally and financially responsible thing to do. Paul in Kerry. Paul, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yeah, hi, Jeff. And I have to say, I am really tired of hearing the woe is me. How many generations before us had to make a decision whether they were going to college or not and then live up to their honor and responsibilities of paying back those loans? My father did not go to college, and he would not allow his parents to take out a second mortgage. I, on the other hand, from the first day of undergrad, started accumulating that debt. I went through undergrad, grad school, and professional school. It took me 25 years to pay off my loans. I graduated at the exit interview, was told I had the second highest debt in my class. Mm-hmm. What's hurtful is the first four years, knowing that every monthly payment went towards interest, not even the principal. So, Jeff, I'm so tired of hearing, woe is me. Yep. And the politicians kind of buy votes. By, by, by I'm doing sorry, insulting, uh, insulting everybody else. Right. No, no thanks to call. Look, I mean... And, and somebody texted me. You, you obviously have no idea what it's like. Okay, here's the deal. My late wife, we met in law school. Um, she got through undergrad and she got through law school on, on student loans. So when, when she came out, uh, when we got out of law school, you know, she had a, a, a lot of debt. It was our debt. And, and yes, and we, we paid off those loans. And yes, it meant that, gee, okay, maybe we, we can't afford to have furniture in the living room for a couple of years because we've got to make these payments. But that's the obligation that, that you have. And, you know, nobody, I mean, I, I just, I roll my eyes when I see this thing in the newspaper where the guy's saying, well, you know, I, my mom forced me into taking this student loan and making me go to a four-year college. Yeah, I'll, I'll bet. <laughs> I'll bet that that's the case. Oh, here, twist my arm. I, you know, I'm going off to have to the kegger and things like that. Gee, mom, I really don't want to go off to this school. Here, let's go to the football games, et cetera. And mom, it's all your fault because, you know, this happened. Jeff, my niece continued paying and was able to pay off her student loans during COVID. I'm very proud of her. She knew that it was her responsibility. Um, yeah, I think that there's a lot of this out there. 
Um, Jeff, uh, no mention of what jobs these people have, no mention of what degree, if any, they got, no mention about what their payment history is. I'm betting each and every one has been spending money on frivolous things. I have zero sympathy. That would be the interesting follow-up. Did you ask? Okay, you haven't had to make student loan payments since when, whenever they first put that into effect. Was it 2020? Okay, so what have you done? First of all, the question would be, to me, how did COVID impact you? Did you lose your job? Did you never get your job back? Or have you continued to work all during COVID? Okay, well, so if the pandemic didn't affect you, you know, what reason did you really have for not making those student loan payments? And then, all right, what did you do? How have you spent the money that you have when you, you know, that you didn't use that was supposed to go to the student loan payments. What what did you spend that on? Oh, you bought a new car. Oh, you went on a trip. Oh, okay. All right. Those are decisions that you make. And I get it that you're able to make that decision because the government ended up in the situation where we said, you know, we're, we're not going to means test. We're just going to say across the board that regardless of what your income situation is, regardless of what your personal situation is, we're not going to make you make payments and we're going to give you that break. But it would be interesting to know, okay, what is the last three or four years looked like and how have you spent that money that you were supposed to be spending? Now, I am not completely unsympathetic. And candidly, I think early on in the pandemic, we missed an opportunity back before. I mean, you know, interest rates used to be really, really low. Now you've got we're we're going to talk about this in I think the two o'clock hour of the program. Now you've got interest rates that are are really, really high, maybe not historically high, but high in comparison to where they have been for the last number of years. And I think we had an opportunity a couple of years ago, instead of talking about loan forgiveness and we're going to write off all this debt, stuff that was clearly illegal, you know, what they could have done is started exploring the idea of refinancing some of these loans so people could have gotten in at more market rate interest loans. I still think there's the potential to do that, but that, that market rate interest is going to be substantially higher now than it was two or three years ago. But this idea that, well, I mean, it's been terrible for my mental health because I have to pay my debt. I mean, really, suck it up, buttercup. Back with more in just a couple minutes. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, very glad to have you with us. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Yeah, another bad day. It's been a a relentlessly bad couple months with the uh, stock market for a variety of reasons. Dow Jones down another 1%, the NASDAQ down almost 1.5%, and seems like this is just a common story day after day after day after day. All right. Late last week, the U.S. Attorney's Office announced that U.S. Senator Bob Menendez, Democrat from New Jersey, had been indicted on a variety of charges, but essentially the allegations are that he was taking bribes in connection with uh, essentially the government of Egypt. <laughs> that, that, that's what was going on here. He and his, his wife 
were, were taking bribes. She They got married a few years back, and she had connections, and all of a sudden the cash started coming in. This is not the first time he has been indicted on public corruption charges. He was indicted a few years ago. He was tried, and the trial ended in a hung jury, and for whatever reason, the U.S. Attorney's Office made the decision that they weren't going to try him. This now appears to have emboldened him. The allegations are that they, they search his place, and they find almost half a million dollars in cash squirreled away in different places throughout the house, in, the house, um, in, in coat pockets, in the lining of, of a jacket he has with the Senate emblem on it. So almost $500,000 in cash. And I, I will tell you from another life, you know, having chased drug dealers, $500,000 in cash takes up a lot of space. I mean, it's not there. That's that's there's a lot of volume to five hundred thousand dollars. It's not just like here. This is a couple bills. So he had this squirreled all throughout his apartment. On top of that, they find about one hundred eighty thousand dollars worth of gold bars and the gold bars are that's fingerprints or DNA or whatever trace back to the um, the people that allegedly bribed him, you know, so the U.S. Attorney's Office just didn't say, hey, we found these gold bars. They went that extra step and said, OK, well, this is clearly where the, these gold bars came from. Now, um, Menendez holds a press conference yesterday and he plays the Hispanic card. He says, this is th- this is this is just outrageous. And they're going after me because, you know, I'm a first generation, you know, Cuban and uh, if I wasn't Hispanic, they wouldn't be doing this. And his argument is that the reason I have all the, this cash squirreled away in all these places is because, well, you know, when my family came over from Cuba, you know, you had Castro who had taken over the, the country and we lost all this stuff. So I've been pulling this out of my bank account and storing it um, over the years. Well, I think the problem with that is going to be the U.S. Attorney's Office is going to be able to get the guy's bank records for years and years, and you're not going to be able to find $500,000 in withdrawals. On top of that, there's still been no explanation for those gold bars. <laughs> you got Look, and the bottom line here is if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, it's a duck. Menendez is a crook. He's been a crook for a number of years. He beat the system once. And that simply emboldened him. But but we do have, at least in a court of law, we have, again, it's, it's innocent until proven guilty. But that's in a court of law that decides whether or not you, you go to, to prison. Um, Menendez says, no, oh, this is all just it's a misunderstanding. And he is sure that he will be cleared when all this this comes out, and he's intending, at least at this point in time, I believe, to run for re-election next November uh, or November of 2024. In many respects, and he says, no intention of resigning. This is, as long as we want to cross party lines, this is, in some respects, very reminiscent of the embattled Congress, first-term congressman George Santos, you know, out of New York, who's been charged with fraud and money laundering and theft of public funds and false statements, who remains an absolute embarrassment that George Santos is still in Congress. But he's refusing to step down as well. And so, you know, he's in a situation where he's hanging on until his trial, 
which probably, I mean, I don't know if it'll ultimately occur before his term ends or not. But he's decided, you know, he's been indicted. He's not going anywhere. Menendez says he's not going to go anywhere. Um, a number of Democrats, including, and interestingly enough, many of whom are up for re-election in 2024, including Tammy Baldwin, are now coming out and saying he should resign. This is what Tammy Baldwin says. The indictment spells out deeply troubling allegations against Senator Menendez that breach the American people's trust and compromise his ability to effectively represent his constituents. While Senator Menendez enjoys the presumption of innocence until proven guilty and will have his day in court to defend himself, I believe it's best for his constituents, the American people, and our national security for the senator to step down. Baldwin joined a small but growing list of Senate Democrats who have called for Menendez to step down from his post. U.S. Senators John Fetterman, he's the guy that um, wears the hoodie and the shorts. Peter Welch of Vermont and Sherrard Brown of Ohio were among the first Democrats to call for his resignation. Baldwin and U.S. Senator John Tester of Montana joined them early Tuesday, and a number of other Democrats, including Menendez's fellow New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, piled on later in the morning. Like Brown and Tester, Baldwin is up for re-election in 2024. Again, Menendez indicted in New York last week on charges alleging he covertly aided the government of Egypt and business associates in exchange for gold bars and lumps of cash Gold bars, $48,000 of cash stuffed into jackets bearing his name during a search of his home. He says he's not going anywhere. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. I consider it to be an absolute embarrassment that George Santos has refused to resign from Congress. And even though he's sort of been ostracized in Congress, Given the nature of the charges, he has no business being there, at least in my opinion, while he, again, tries to defend himself. Similarly, the fact that Bob Menendez, who, by the way, has been a crook for the longest time, I think it's one of the least kept secrets, worst kept secrets in the Senate, that this guy has been just as corrupt as possible. But now that you see these charges against him, and again, Innocent until proven guilty. But that applies to whether or not you're going to take somebody's liberty away. That doesn't apply to, in the nature of these charges, whether somebody should continue to serve in the United States Senate. All right. Should Menendez resign? Is Tammy Baldwin right? And you can mark the tape on this because you don't hear me say it very often. But in this case, Tammy Baldwin and all these other Democrats I cited nails it on the head. There's no way this guy should continue to serve in the United States Senate. It is an absolute embarrassment. And Biden should call for him to resign. Senate leadership should pressure him to resign. It's an embarrassment that he's there. And before, again, you say this, George Santos, same sort of thing. He should have been embarrassed into resigning a long time ago. 855-616-1620. Does Menendez need to go? We discuss in a moment. So very glad to have you with us. A lot of people tuning in, checking out my old school kind of brewer's outfit tonight. You can watch us as we stream the programs live simply by going to our YouTube channel and putting in WTMJ or alternatively WTMJ.com. Hit the watch live button or, of course, listening to us on the radio as well. And always a lot of fun. And we know lots of people are starting to do that. Um, we, we've always had 
good good number of people who are watching, and now lots lots more people are watching. And so again, I'm rocking. I'm going to the Brewers game tonight, right after work, and rocking the the old school. This is the best Brewers logo, in my opinion. It's the old ball and glove, um, which I thought was incredibly creative. Okay, uh, let me let me give you a little bit of Milwaukee history. So for people like my producer Samantha, who didn't grow up or around here. Uh, back in the day, there was a shopping center called Capitol Court, which was on 60th and, and Capitol. And when I was a kid, Capitol Court was a thriving shopping center. Um, you had there, there was a Gimbel store. I, I know that was there. There was a Boston store that was there in the in the parking lot. They had this thing called Funland, and I can remember as a kid going over there. It was like a it was a small uh, amusement park. Uh, there was a movie theater, but it it was it was thriving. Um, and again, it's on 60th and Capitol. Well, uh, Capitol Court sort of went the way of a, a lot of stuff in these these urban areas and it it deteriorated for a lot of reasons. Well what happened is in in the midtown center, 60th and, and Capitol, at, at one point in time there's a big they converted there was a big box building that housed a Walmart. And th- this was, you know, again it was at the midtown center. The Walmart went out of business in 2016 as did you know many of the the places at this at the midtown center and seven years later that building which is a huge building continues to be vacant it, it's a 15 acre property the building itself is about 16 um let's see the building has about 16,000 square feet the the, the overall Midtown Shopping Center has about 50,000 square feet that is vacant. So it, it's this giant, empty shopping center, largely, in a challenged, whether, you know, whether it's you, for whatever reasons, you know, and that, that's a whole different story, whether it's because of crime or the economics of the area. It, it's, it's a huge, empty shopping center, largely empty shopping center, highlighted by a 16,000-foot empty Walmart that's been empty for the last, like I say, six or seven years. So what happens last year is this, it's called Affordable Family Storage. Um, that That's the company, they're based out of Iowa, and they've got like sub-companies, but they come in and they buy that property. They buy the Walmart that has been vacant for seven years, and they pay about $3 million um, for this. What this company does is it, it, and this is what they've done across the country, they take shuttered retail big box stores, and what they do is they turn them into self-storage facilities, right? And so they've done this before. Their first location is, um, they did this at a pick-and-save grocery store on South Packard Avenue in Cudahy. So they, they buy this. The company has 18 self-storage locations across the Midwest. So what they do is they say, okay, here, here's here's the deal. You've got this this empty facility, and what we want to do is we want to we, we want to try to do something with this. Obviously, you're not going to be able to bring back retail, so we want to put this this self storage in. Well, here's the way the local newspaper reports it: 
a plan to convert a long vacant Central City Walmart into a self-storage facility with retail storefronts is opposed by city officials. So they want to take this space. Now, they, they want to convert um, 850 self-storage units. And then what they would do is they would take the remaining space and convert it into four small and mid-sized retail and commercial storefronts. They would also replace part of the former Walmart parking lot with green space, which could eventually be a site for affordable um, apartments. Self-storage centers right now are, are barred at Midtown Center because they, they, the city says, well, you know, we, we don't want these because we don't think that self-storage is going to bring enough activity to the Midtown Center, to which um, they say, wait a second, you, you've got this building that has been empty for seven years. There's no realistic chance that you're going to find a, a big box retailer to move in. So what we want to do is we want to turn it into the self-storage facility, at least the majority of it. And then maybe, you know, if once we get this going, maybe we get some small development that's going there. But to just do nothing with it and not let us turn it into self-storage just pretty much guarantees that this place is going to continue to be an eyesore and a blight. And just as they have done with Northridge in the past, the city is saying, well, you know, no, we, we don't think this is a good idea. The alderman for the area says he opposes the plan in part because a large self-storage facility would do little to help the Midtown Center. Um, <laughs> the plan commission voted to deny the company's request for a zoning exception. All right, our, our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. So you, you have a vacant building that's been vacant for the last seven years. You have this company that says, look, we, we've got a, a use for this. We think we can turn it into self-storage. We think that might generate some additional interest in this area. And the city's saying, oh, we don't like self-storage. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Look, I understand that the best case scenario would be if you could recreate Capitol Court out there in 1972. But it's not 1972, and it's not the old Capitol Court. When you have a building that's been vacant for seven years, if you don't allow the company that owns it to do what it is that they do best, don't you pretty much guarantee that that building is going to continue to be empty for another seven years or 17 or 70 years? 855-616-1620. Sometimes the city just can't get out of its own way. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. For those of you watching on our YouTube channel, this is another one of those situations where I'm afraid my head is just going to absolutely explode. Just like the conversation we've had with Northridge. If you were to say to me, okay, Jeff, you've got this vacant Walmart, the old Capitol Court, um, now they call it in you know, Midtown. You've got this vacant Walmart. It's been vacant for seven years, and there's no serious likelihood that any significant retail is going to go back in there. That That's just kind of the reality. If there was... It would have probably happened over the course of the last seven years. So the company that bought this place, they specialize in self-storage. So they say, here's what we want to do. We want to take 
105,000 of the 160,000 square foot building or whatever, and we want to turn it into self-storage. We want to start using this. We want to start generating revenue out of this, and then we'll take some of the remaining space and we'll create some small storefronts, and we'll see if we can get anybody in there. But this is, I mean, the key to it is it's got to be self-storage. That That's what this company does. That's how they generate their revenue. And the city of Milwaukee no, we don't think that that's the best use. We don't think that self-storage does much for the neighborhood. Like like a vacant Walmart does anything for the neighborhood. 855-616-1620. Jeff, as long as the city does absolutely nothing to control crime and violence in Midtown, the area is going to attract no businesses other than, you know, some of these different types of stores. Jeff, if the city has any better ideas, tell them to get them implemented. It's been sitting there for years, and the city council hasn't come up with anything, so they shouldn't worry about what happens to it. Well, I mean... They, they can worry about what happens to it, but if you don't have any alternatives that are out there, and in this case, the alternative is a vacant building that, look at Northridge, is going to continue to deteriorate. It's an attraction for crime. You know, There's nothing good that comes of this. This business is at least saying, hey, I mean, we, we've got a plan. And, and by the way, you know, if we can get this self-storage thing going, we can generate some revenue. You know, well, maybe we can open up a couple small storefronts and attract people. And then we've still got all this space in this vacant parking lot full of weeds. Maybe what we can do is we, we might even be able to use that for some green space and do some retail development, do some, you know, residential development. But the key is you got to get this whole thing started. 855-616-1620. Um, you know, Jeff, you know, you know, maybe the gas station in that area, which is being forced to close, will also become more self-storage. Ah, well, that's there's a point there. Jeff, the city of Milwaukee government is a clown show. Let me stop there. I, I think that might be an insult to clown shows. Why would they turn this down? It's tax revenue. If they could get a grip on crime, maybe businesses wouldn't be closing or relocating. Um Yes, um, you've got that there. Jeff, plain and simple, the plant city is making the wrong move to deny the self-storage. I'm 53 years old, and I grew up on 57th and Hampton. I worked at the Save a Center food store at Capitol Court when I was a kid. There's never, ever going to be booming retail in that area again. Bordered by Capitol and Fond du Lac Avenue, dangerous roads, dangerous neighborhoods. It's sorry, sad what that neighborhood has become. I, I agree with all that, but this is at least something that gets some sort of industry that that is in there. Jeff, they will never get retail in there again. I mean, this is going to become another Northridge. Jeff, the aldermen in Milwaukee continue to prove themselves to be foolish. Time and time again, they prefer vacant properties and blight over any form of development. Let me give you examples. Northridge, Century City, and now Capitol Court. Yeah, the, the Century City thing, for those of you who might be New to the area, um, you know, Century City, old, old plant that's been vacant for the longest time. What you had is you had um, Strauss Veal, the meatpacking facility um, in Franklin. They wanted to locate into Century City. They were going to bring 200 plus, and it, Strauss is a wonderful company. They were going to bring 200 plus, you know, really good, well-paying jobs into that area. Century City, very, very tough area because not only you've got the neighborhood, not only you've got the crime, but also it's landlocked. It doesn't have access to freeways. It's hard to get to. But Strauss was going to build this facility there, which I believe, and I think most people believe, would have been a catalyst 
for at least it could have been a catalyst for development in that area. And after you had a couple, I don't know, a couple people started whining, what ended up happening is the alderman decided, well, I don't think this is an appropriate place for a meat packing, pack, packing plant without ever having gone, I don't believe, to you know Strauss's facility in Franklin. Because if you had, you would have known that you, you, you couldn't tell it. It's not like... Meatpacking plants aren't like meatpacking plants were in 1920 when Upton Sinclair wrote the book The Jungle. You couldn't tell, and I went past their facility, you couldn't tell the difference between the meatpacking plant and, I don't know, a company that, you know, makes boxes or things like that. But anyhow, the aldermen objected, people in the neighborhood started whining, so Strauss said, fine, you don't want us, go with God, forget it. And as a result, you, you still have this blight. This is what's going on on um you know this is what's going on on a regular basis that's out there and if you would put this in you would you know somebody was saying well you know how does this benefit the city well of course it benefits the city because you you have an employer that's now you know paying taxes and things like that it's an industry as opposed to an empty building but at this point in time the city is saying no to this without any reasonable alternative as to what else is going to go in there. Mind-boggling to me. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. You know, I understand that we all view things through the prism of our political um, perspectives. And, you know, if you're a liberal, then, you know, let the left can do no wrong. And if you're a conservative, then the right can do no wrong. But every once in a while, I get frustrated because there's stuff that is common sense. And we, we just we're so blinded by our political stuff that we can't come. We, we can't deal with this. And I understand that there's all sorts of issues that go on with how we conduct elections. Now, I don't believe that elections have been stolen, but I do believe over the last several years you have had procedures that have been adopted that run contrary to to state law. You know, and you've had an elections board that's made some determinations. and I think they've been wrong on the law. But but I, does that mean an election's been stolen? Do I believe that there's evidence that all sorts of people were, I don't know, fraudulently voted? No, I, I, I don't. I just think that you've got issues with, like, best practices. One of the problems over the last several years has been the fact that the nowadays more and more people vote early. That, that's just the reality, and that's not going to change. It, it's just not going to change. So what happens, and it, it was starting to happen before the pandemic, and now it's just increased. So what happens is people go in, and I do this. I, I, I typically don't vote during the, through the mail, but I, I early absentee vote. You know, then when it opens up a week before the election or 10 days or whatever it is, I typically go over to City Hall. I, I cast my ballot. I fill it out. I put it in the envelope. I seal it. I give it to the clerk. And then what happens is that that ballot is put somewhere in some secure facility. But even though I have cast the vote, you know, nine days, 10 days before the election, the envelope is not opened and it is not checked until election day. Because where it stands right now is um, under current law, clerks cannot begin counting absentee ballots before 7 a.m. on election day. Now, so why does this create an issue? So let's say you've got 50 percent, 
40%, 35% of the votes that are cast are early votes, absentee, whether in-person absentee or sent through the mail. So what happens is you have all these things that are stacked up, but you can't even begin opening them and trying to verify them till Election Day. Meanwhile, you've got the poll workers who are dealing on Election Day with the crush of everyone else who is coming in to vote. The result of this has been, particularly in some of our urban areas, Milwaukee specifically, that what happens is that the poll workers, yes, they can begin processing these absentee ballots at 7 a.m., but a lot of times there's flat out not enough of them. And so what happens is you get the the ballots that are cast during the day, the in-person votes, and they get counted. And then you have late at night, you have this ballot dump where all of a sudden, you know, they get around to saying, okay, we have X thousands of these early votes that have come in, these absentee votes, and now we're going to dump them into the system. And what you see is, for example, if you remember the Scott Walker, Tony Evers gubernatorial election, a lot of people who went to bed thought Scott Walker had been reelected. But then you had the ballot dump of you know Milwaukee, where you have thousands and thousands of votes, which are largely Evers votes that come in and they flip the totals. Well, I mean, a lot of people were saying, okay, that's evidence of fraud. I don't believe it's evidence of fraud at all. It's just evidence of the way the system works that we don't allow these early votes to be processed in a timely fashion, I would argue. So there's a new bill that's been introduced by three Republican lawmakers, which would allow clerks to begin processing absentee ballots the day before Election Day. Um, while clerks would not be able to count absentee ballots until after the polls close, they could perform tasks like ensuring the voter is not ineligible due to a felony conviction, checking that the envelope contains what it needs to contain, like the witness signature, and taking the ballot out of the envelope to run it through the voting equipment. So you have everything set to go so that when... The day before the election day rolls along, um, you, you can you can do all this so it's set to go, and then you can just start feeding these things through. Now, I would actually go farther, and, and I think that when these ballots come in, they should, you know, you, you should have the ability, the clerk should be have the ability to, you know, process these things and, and, again, start feeding them into the machines, not tabulating them, but feeding them in so... When the polls open, you can just push the button and then they could automatically be counted. But uh, some people disagree with that. I, I just I don't see the downside to this. I know people think that, oh, there's this potential for fraud that's out there. I, I don't I don't get it. Doesn't make any sense to me. Do I think that the clerk should count? And the concern is, well, you know, somebody could count these things, and you could know, you know, who which candidate has X amount of votes beforehand. No, you, you still keep them under some sort of secured thing. It's just that you you get everything done before election day. So when election day rolls around, and these clerks are overwhelmed, particularly in some of the urban areas, by the crush of people who are coming in, you can just have somebody just feeding these things in instead of going through all this rigmarole that you have to go through, get all that out of the way so you can get these things processed. Candidly, if you want, at least in my opinion, if if you want to have election integrity, one of the things that hurts election integrity is the fact that, like I was saying, you go to bed thinking one candidate's won, and then all of a sudden there's been this huge swing of votes, and you know, 100,000 votes came in and 80,000 for one for one candidate. That makes you... 
think about you know what happened when Lyndon Johnson won his Senate race in uh, Texas back in the 1950s, where you know they always used to say it, it's not who votes, it's who counts the votes, and it's when they count the votes. Well, I, I don't believe that happens in Wisconsin, but I believe that the way we do things now contributes to people going, hey, this is kind of funny. I mean, that out of the last 50,000 votes, 40,000 went for, you know, one side or the other. Well, it's largely because of where those those votes come from. And if they're coming, for example, from the city of Milwaukee, you, you know it's going to be the Democrat with 75% of those votes, maybe more. So that's not surprising that that happens, but it's not a good look. So this is at least a step to try to minimize it. I would go farther, but this is one where it seems to me that Republicans and Democrats and the governor should be able to get get some sort of agreement so we do something, again, to make it easier for the clerks who are trying to get ballots counted and results announced in a timely fashion on Election Day. All right, when we come back... Don't California my car. I'll explain. We'll discuss. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. John McCure, I was hoping that when you returned from your European vacation, yeah. you'd bring some good news about the stock market that has been on oh. a relentless downward plunge it seems yeah i sat down here and the first thing i said as i opened it up right for the newscast is my goodness jeff look at the market and you said yeah it's been like that for the whole time i was gone it's been just plummeting well i, I i'll give you i was just pulling up the numbers during the break yeah. because i you know and you you can you can go back to any time but just arbitrarily i said okay let's go back to january 1st january 21st 2021 which was joe biden's and doctor his, yep. his inauguration yep the nasdaq um, which was at the time was 13,457 is now 13,065. So over the last two and a half years, yep. it, it, it's down over 400 points. The S&P um, is up on average like two to two and a half percent per year. The Dow is up slightly like two percent per year as well. But in, of course, inflation is, is it, what inflation is. is. It, right. It's almost 10 percent. Yes, it's just uh, it's it's depressing. I, I can't look at it, but I look at it every day. Well, yeah, me too. But you know, because again, depressing. and for people who say, "Well, it's only for people that are wealthy and stuff," no, I mean most people have money in the stock market, whether it's in your four hundred one k plans Absolutely. or your IRAs or people that are living on fixed income that make some of these predictions, and they're like, "Okay, well, I understand that you can't have unprecedented growth, but it's just." It, it's been a bad stretch of time. Yeah, July was pretty decent, and August and September have been brutal. Brutal. I yeah. mean, just really bad. August is typically a bad month. September typically is a pretty good month, and September has been terrible. Right, and you don't, I mean, you said off the air, and you're exactly right. I don't know what it's going to take to turn this around. It, it, it's funny, because every every morning I sit down in my office, and I as I'm doing research to get ready for the show, I pull up the Wall Street Journal, and, and they, they have across the front of it, they, they'll have the, the futures, you know, before yeah. the market opens. And every day I keep thinking... Oh, it's got to be green numbers, and every day it's these these red numbers that are yeah. Out so there. yesterday was a day where it was red almost all day, and at the end of the day, everything closed up just a hair above flat. And I try to take that and say, all right, so this is good. There was momentum at the end of the day. Maybe it's going to be better. And today is once again a terrible day. Um, awful. But you know, you'll have more of that on Wisconsin's afternoon. You got that news. right. But it's a um, yes. It is. It is. It is bleak. There, there's no question about it. Of course, President Biden he joined auto workers on the picket line in Michigan. We talked about that at the start of the program. You can listen to that on the podcast. Um, I was asking people for one word, and to me, just 
absolutely pathetic. This is the first time in American history that a sitting president has, normally presidents are trying to like resolve these things and, and work these things out. This is the first time that a sitting president has made the decision to go on a picket line. And of course, he's still not answering the questions that people are now asking, saying, well, the United Auto Workers, they want 40%, a 40% wage increase. Do, do you think that they should get this, Mr. President? Mr. President, the United Auto Workers want full pay, 40-hour pay for a 32-hour week. Do you think they should get it? And he's refusing to answer that, but he, he's on the, the picket lines. Franklin Roosevelt never did this. Harry Truman never did this. And Joe Biden has without any sort of thought about, hey, what what would happen to the economy if actually the, the big three companies gave in? And what they say is, well, the, our companies would be bankrupt in the next couple of years. And by the way, all this stuff with the electric vehicles isn't going to happen, which brings me to what I want to discuss with you next. Speaking of electric vehicles. Now, if you are a regular listener of this program, you know that I am, if you want to buy an electric vehicle, my response is go with God. That, that That's it. I have no interest in doing this. I don't think the technology is there. Maybe it's going to be there in five years. I mean, maybe you're going to have the battery technology. Maybe you're going to have the long-distance capacity. Maybe you're going to have enough chargers, and maybe you're going to be able to recharge your car fast enough to make these practical. It, it may very well be the case, but we're not there now, and, and as a result, I would never buy an electric vehicle. Now, I know people who have electric vehicles. I, I do, and in, in general, I think most of them you know, like them, but they're, they're second or third cars. They're, they're play toys. They're, okay, we're going to take a spin around town and things like that. Um, it's not practical for long-range driving unless you're really willing to say, okay, I'm going to take a chance that I'm not going to be able to you know, find a charger or I'm going to drive all over and I'm willing to wait a couple hours to charge the car. It's just not practical for most people. So I understand there's the early adopters out there that, that love them. The other problem is our electric grid just simply cannot support this. I mean, where is the electricity going to come from? But but that's okay. If you want to buy the electric vehicle, that's fine. What I object to, though, is the government forcing the rest of us into buying electric vehicles. To me, this is a free market thing. If the technology and the price and the convenience comes to a certain point that people want to buy this, well, then then that that's great. But I do not believe that the government should be forcing this. And yet this is precisely what is going on in California. Now, um, California has asked the federal government for a waiver of, of rules. They need a waiver of rules. But what they want to do is they want to ban the sale of any gasoline-powered car, new car, after 2035. So if you if you had a gasoline-powered used car, you could sell it, you could drive it. But no new cars that are powered by gasoline after 2035. Um, in addition to this, they are phasing this in. California would also say, and let me pull up the numbers, 2026, two and a half, three years from now, 35% of the new cars would have to be electric. And by 2030, six years from now, six and a half years, 68%. So if you want to buy 
a, a new car, effectively the cost of that new car that is gasoline-powered is going to go through the roof because the automakers, there's going to be a limited number of what they can sell. And this isn't based on market. This isn't based on, hey, you've got 35% of the people who want to buy electric vehicles in 2026 because then it would take care of itself. This is based on the fact that the government is coming in and saying, no, we're not going to let you, you know, um, you know, 35% of the cars have to be electric whether you want them or not, which means that the people buying that 65% of the non-electric cars, they're going to be paying a lot more. Last week, eight House Democrats and 214 Republicans voted to block California and other states from banning gasoline-powered vehicles. And the way they do this is by telling the Environmental Protection Agency that, you know, their interpretation of CO2 laws is, is wrong and that they can't do it. But the bottom line is, as it stands right now, if you want to buy a new car in California or in 15 other states that follow California's rules, um, 35% are going to have to be electric vehicles by 2026. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. All right, this is something that um, maybe some people think is a really, really good idea. I'm sure it's something that appeals to Tony Evers if he could have ever had enough votes in the legislature to get this passed. But what do you think about the government mandating effectively that you must buy an electric vehicle? Because that's going to be the rule in 2035. But as soon as 2026, in some states like California, that's going to be the practical effect because the cost of internal combustion engines is going to be so high, you're going to price a lot of people out of at least the new car market. 855-616-1620, we discuss. Is it time to California or Wisconsin? 855-616-1620. Look, if you want to buy an electric vehicle, fine. Buy, buy an electric vehicle. To me, and and I don't even want to get into the whole idea about whether the government should be subsidizing people's purchases of $60,000 vehicles by giving them $7,500 in credit. I don't. Let's even put that aside. But I think it should be an individual choice. I don't think the government should be arbitrarily saying, okay, Um, within the next 10 years, you're not even going to have the option of buying a new internal combustion engine car. Or by 2026, 35% of the cars that are sold have to be electric vehicles, even if the technology isn't there. And the truth of the matter is the technology isn't close to this. One of our texters says, does anyone else see the irony between banning gas-powered vehicles and the current situation with the strike? Our government has no forethought. They are in the moment thinkers. Well, right, that... See, that, that's, that's part of the issue that's here. You've got the United Auto Workers that are out on, on strike. Okay, that's, that's fine, or at least some of them are, are out on strike. Well, at the same time, Joe Biden is walking the picket lines with them. He's also essentially killing the American automobile industry by saying, all right, we're going to go to these electric vehicles. And the truth is, you know, a lot of the electric vehicles are manufactured at non-union shops. A lot of the stuff is coming in from overseas. This is part—and, by the way, he's saying, well, I, I want 
I want the American in, I want the worker to get more money. Okay, that that's all well and good, but that's that's money that then they're not able to put into developing American electric vehicle plants. Yes, I do in fact see the irony of that. Jill says Forcing people to buy an electric vehicle is wrong. My husband and I do have an all-electric car that we love, but that was our choice. Um, yes, there, there's no question about that. And if you want to do that, you know, that's great. Jeff, this will mean there's going to be a lot of traditional new car dealerships opening up in cities right across the border of California. People will just cross state lines. I mean, again, I would— think that that would be the case. And one of our texters makes an interesting point about the, the whole notion of, of, of where the power is going to come from and said, okay, well, are the same people who are pushing for electric vehicles, are, are, where are they on the whole issue of nuclear power? Which I think is a very, very fair question. I, I'm, I'm a fan of nuclear power. I think that, you know, when you talk about clean, efficient energy, that that's what the future is. But you try to talk about to people about, well, let, let's build a nuclear plant and everybody, you know, goes back to, you know, the, the Jane Fonda movie in the 1970s, the, the China syndrome. Oh, my gosh, you know, we're, we're going to have all this stuff, this stuff happen without regard for, you know, where the nuclear industry is now. But regardless of how you feel about nuclear energy, the truth is, you know, when the electric grid right now in many parts of the country is simply not sustainable for the demand we have now. So what's going to happen when we move on and what's going to happen when we say, okay, let's figure this out and we're going to have all these other cars now that are going to be on the grid. We're certainly not going to be ready for this in in two years. Now, whether ultimately in 10 years we're ready for it, don't know. Let's talk to Mike in Appleton. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Yes, I just wondered where hybrids fit into this conversation. You know, it's like they get good mileage and they're not all the way electric, so can more safely go on longer uh, rides or distances with them. Right. And uh, I don't understand that about what California is saying and the, the rulings. And the 35%, is that uh, just completely electric? Yes, or yes that's completely electric. Hybrid? No, that doesn't include or hybrids. It, well, okay, I'll give you an idea. So I'm looking at this. Okay, 2035 is, is when is when they ban all sales of internal combustion engines. The rule would allow automakers to sell up to 20% plug-in hybrids, which have gas engines. So you could have the plug-in, but it has to be a plug-in hybrid. So that that's where that falls in, to answer your question directly. But you got to understand, the people that are pushing for electric vehicles, they don't like hybrids because they still have the gas energy, and the, the gas engines, and they're still using fossil fuels. Yeah. Um, well, I'm not for a mandate, but I think that, you know, the government encouraging uh, that direction is probably a good thing in the long run. But it uh, yeah. uh, seems like to me hybrids are a better first step than going completely one way or the other. Yeah, no, thanks. And, and again, no, and I, and I appreciate that. And, and you see a lot more hybrids that, that are that are out there. Um, a lot of the automakers are coming out with that. But a lot of the the environmental folks, they don't they don't like anything that, that's going to burn gasoline. That That's the whole idea. Just like they don't want you heating your home with natural gas. 
just like they don't want you heating your the water in your house with natural gas, just like, God forbid, that you should have a gas stove. They, they, they want to eliminate all those different types of things and then, again, force us to electricity. And I'm not anti-electricity, but the question becomes, where where is it, in fact, going to going to come from now my my place in florida it's 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 pretty much all electric we don't have natural gas hookups where it is that i live and, and that's okay and that, it's just it kind of gets so there's a gas water heater the um the uh it, we don't have a furnace we have one of the um the heat pump things like there that to provide the air conditioning that's run by that's run by electricity and, and that's fine that's what comes with the territory but up here I mean, if you're going to heat a house, for example, in January, a natural gas is the most efficient, plentiful way to do this. And yet you have people that hate it because it's a fossil fuel. The same thing is true, at least in my opinion, with these automobiles. We're just not ready for this right now. And look, if the automakers get behind this and you have these charging stations that are there and these things become practical, then the marketplace is going to take over. Then people will will buy them because I, I understand there are certain aspects of the electric car that is superior to the internal combustion engine. But that's assuming that people are going to put up with all the stuff that you have to put up with, which includes the the, the limited range and the need to you know, come up with a way to charge the vehicle and all those different types of things. And by the way, what are we going to do with the batteries once the batteries start to expire? If you want to buy an electric car, that's great. But the government is trying to force us into this. And and um, what you have is the government forcing us into this. And 2026 and 2030, it's coming faster than people think. And we're not just ready for this, period. My take, don't California our Wisconsin when it comes to cars. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. One of our regular listeners, Laura, who lives, well, she lives on the east side, but she lives more often in Las Vegas, Texas. Jeff, we have so many people already moving to Nevada due to high taxes and crime in California. This is going to cause the floodgates to open and even more people will move here. Don't California my Nevada. I think that's the, that's that's a good bumper sticker thing. Don't California my Wisconsin. Don't California my Nevada. I had uh, <laughs> this story that just kind of brought back memories. Here's the way it was reported on uh, Channel 12. Wauwatosa post office collection boxes broken into. Now these are, you know, th- these are the the drive through. Like you you pull into the post office and you don't get out of your car. You just drive up and you you stick your the, the mail in in the box, right? And then you drive off. So it's not in the post office proper. It is a convenience. And I guess this is first of all, it comes in the category of there are people out there that will steal anything. They they just will. So here's the story. Um, Police think the suspect or suspects used a pry bar to open the boxes and steal the mail inside. Uh, United States Postal Collection boxes outside the Wauwatosa Police Office were broken into last week. According to the Wauwatosa Police, they responded to the post office on Mayfair Road just before 2.30 in the afternoon on Friday. They believe that someone or some people used a pry bar to open the boxes and steal the mail and packages out of the two blue postal boxes. 
One of the regulars is quoted on the TV as saying, have a heart, man. Come on, have a heart. The boxes were still out of commission Monday with yellow signs posted on them, warning customers not to use them and drop their mail off inside. Um, let's see. And the people are saying, oh, this is, you think you're, you know, this is not good that your mail is getting stolen. Investigators say the theft happened sometime between 8 p.m. on Thursday and 2.30 p.m. on Friday, an 18-hour um, window. Channel 12 checked the post office for exterior surveillance cameras but did not spot any. They asked then, is there a video or their cameras facing the boxes? Did not get a reply um, there. And so the, the question is then the, the Postal Service says, the United States Postal Inspection Service is aware of an issue at that location, and we are working at our part with our partners at the Wauwatosa Police Department to in, address this um, we don't have anything to say right now. So first of all, the question is, the question is, you know, do, do you need to have security cameras? And I guess I would think it would be a good thing, but I have to tell you in all honesty, we're, we're in a you-know-what of a spot in our society nowadays where you have to put up surveillance cameras on mailboxes because you've got some people that are going to come along and pry the mailboxes open. And maybe that's really the the state that we're we're in. And I guess part of it is even if you put up the cameras, I, you know, who what, what is that necessarily going to tell you? Because they'll probably show up driving a stolen car, and they'll you know be, have their faces masked and things like that. So I'm not sure if if what that does. But I mean, I think the bigger story is there's just people that'll steal anything. I, I mean, seriously, who who thinks that there's going to be people that are brazen enough? to pull up to a couple mailboxes. And these aren't remote mailboxes. This isn't some standalone mailbox at the end of some cul-de-sac somewhere. This is this is the Wauwatosa mail uh, post office. And people pull up and they destroy these post office boxes. They, they destroy the mailboxes prying into them. And I, I mean, I, I guess to me, it, that's the real story here, that you have people who will steal absolutely everything. I have a story I've told this before. Back in the day, before I started prosecuting drug cases, I was doing what we call, re- I was prosecuting reactive crimes, bank robberies, and things like that. Had this one case where I had a guy who was stealing from postal relay boxes. And the way it worked, at least back then, I don't know how they do it now, is um, in downtown, what would happen is in the morning, a mail truck would drive along, and every two blocks, there'd be these green mailboxes, but they, they weren't mail that you could put things in. They were what they call relay boxes. And what they do is they would have like two blocks worth of mail and they put the bag in there. And then you had a mail carrier who was on foot and he would go and he would pick up, he'd open up the relay, that's what they call it, the relay box. And he, he'd take like the two blocks worth of mail and he or she would deliver that. And then two blocks later, they'd come to the next green box and they'd open that up and get the mail. So that's why they'd call it a relay box. It's you know every two blocks or so. So I had this guy who was stealing mail from the postal relay boxes. He, he'd wait till the mail truck came by in the morning, drop these things off. And then what he'd do is he would go and he would break into the boxes and they'd steal, you know, looking for checks and things like that out of that. And so the, the Postal Service frowns on this, and they caught the guy, and we prosecuted him. And I, I just I'll, I'll never forget the story because um, the judge at the time was a very, very nice guy, very, very liberal. And I know 
that the defense attorney, the guy was going to plead guilty to doing this, and I know that the defense attorney had told him there, the, the judge isn't. The judge is going to think this is a waste of his time. That you know, where the federal government is prosecuting somebody from somebody for breaking into mailboxes and things like that, and the chances are that Wagner is going to get yelled at for even bringing this kind of case. So we're standing there, and we, we get to the point of sentencing, and the federal judge. You know, we go through this, and the federal judge, I, I just remember, looks at him and says, you know, I've had it with, you know, th- this type. And the guy had a record stuff, and he said, I've had it with this. I don't know what to do about guys like you with records like this, but all I know is I'm going to put you away where you can't steal from, you know, law-abiding citizens. And he sentences the guy to three years in prison. And I, I'll never forget that the man immediately says, three years, three years, and then he says a bad word. And then he says— "I." Three years, fudge, I didn't, I didn't kill nobody, I just stole some mail. And the judge stalks off the bench, and we're all kind of surprised at what happened. Court reporter comes up to me yesterday, the day, that, later on that day, and says, well, the judge got back from his place up north, and somebody had burglarized his home in Shorewood, and he, just, he was not having any of it, which again proves that thing I always say, that many times a liberal is really a conservative who hasn't been robbed yet. But I, whenever I think about these relay boxes, I, I think of that story. And in this case, I guess it, it hasn't changed over the years. People still breaking into these postal service things. And, you know, I guess I just, the, the other thing is you break into one of these these mailboxes and it's a federal offense. And when you get caught, there is going to be, you know, a comeuppance. There's no doubt about that. And and what can you really get out of it? I mean, people don't send People don't send checks through the mail anymore. This isn't, I mean, it's not like, you know, your social security checks are going to be there. People don't send cash in the mail. But obviously somebody thought it was worth breaking into these collection boxes. Go figure. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. One of our texters says, Jeff, I like it. A liberal is really a conservative who's not been robbed yet. Can I use that? Absolutely. I don't think that's necessarily original. The, I think the, the saying is a liberal is really a conservative who's not been mugged yet. I think that's the way it used to be, but I used the phrase robbed. There's an, there is a story in the local newspaper today which just demonstrates how insane academia is in general and the University of Wisconsin system is in particular. So here's the story. A professor who gave perfect grades to students who didn't deserve them then landed a job at another UW campus. So follow this. Um, Casey Warning logged into his University of Wisconsin Parkside student account last summer and noticed something odd. His transcript showed he had completed his business law and ethics course and earned the highest grade. Hey, that's great. I've finished the course. I got the highest grade, except he hadn't turned in any work for the class yet. Warning, I'd alerted his professor to the error, according to emails. Then in the fall, he noticed the wrong grade still showed up on his transcript. So I want to give this guy credit. Instead of simply saying, hey, I didn't do the work, but I'm getting the highest grade, he said, something's wrong here. So apparently, once he flagged this, it set off an extensive investigation and UW Parkside concluded that one of its tenured professors, Sahar Bumami, 
had engaged in fraudulent grading from 2016 through 2022, including after this guy had emailed about her about her grades. The department found that Bomani awarded the highest possible grade to most students she taught in an online program. Gosh, where were these people when I was in college? Even when they turned in partial work or no work at all. In addition, the department alleged while she served as director of the online program, she assigned herself to 11 courses in disciplines she wasn't qualified to teach, abusing her power for financial gain. Bamani, who declined an interview request, blamed medical issues for the grading errors. Not my fault. Okay, so you get it. They, they catch, you know, they catch her. All right, so the department finds um, no pattern of grading errors in courses that she taught under the traditional grading system, but they feared that her grading errors in the online program would damage the business school's reputation, no kidding, jeopardize its accreditation, and threaten the integrity of the entire institution. Yeah, so you've got this, this professor who's falsifying grades, you know, right and left. So what they did is Parkside files a complaint against her, Um, She acknowledges that the allegations of the complaint are correct. She offers to resign um, at the end of the school year. They let her stay on the university's payroll for six more months and teach two more classes in the spring. So you have this professor who's falsifying all this stuff. They catch her red-handed. She acknowledges she's done it, and Parkside lets her stay on the state payroll. Huh. Okay, but that's— that's not the most interesting part of the story, because apparently what happens is after she gets canned or agrees to resign or whatever, she applies to UW-Milwaukee, and she teaches at UW-Milwaukee this summer. They offer her a one-year, $125,000 non-faculty teaching position for the school year. UWM says they know nothing about the UW Parkside investigation at the time of the offer and would not have extended it, you know, had the university known. I, I'm, I'm sorry, head getting ready to explode. So you know, UWM gets this application from somebody who is leaving Parkside. It's a $125,000 a year job. Nobody at UWM thinks to call somebody at Parkside and say, can you tell me anything about Dr. So-and-so? Because if they had made that one phone call, they would have said, well, here's what you should know. We found out this. There was a disciplinary procedure. She's resigned. Nobody makes that cursory check. They just say, oh, oh, great. Um, You know, um, great. Here's, here's, you know, what's going on with this. So, you know, nobody, nobody apparently, you know, tells them that this is a problem. Now, the story says it's likely at least one person from UW Parkside vouched for her because the posting asked for one reference to be a direct supervisor within the past five years. But it's unclear who did because UWM declined to provide the reference letters. So, first of all, my question is, it wasn't this checked out. And secondly, if you've got somebody from Parkside who was covering up for this woman, that person should be gone as well. It's just, 
It's mind-boggling, first of all, that you have this professor that's doing all this stuff, but then that you can just bounce to another $125,000 gig without, after you've been essentially fired, canned because of all this, and, and nobody is able to find this out. And this is all, it's not even like she's gone down to Texas or California. This is, okay, UW Parkside, UW Milwaukee, the same UW system. And you wonder why people have doubts about in the way um, academia polices itself. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I will send this out on, on Twitter. The um, We talked about this yesterday. The, the There is just an epidemic of, of hit and runs that are going on. What is the estimate that over the last three years, like 6,000 6, of 32% of the automobile crashes in the city of Milwaukee are hit and runs. Now that's not always people, people that are involved in it. It could be, you know, your car is hit and the vehicle ends up taking off and the clearance rate is, is staggeringly low out of out of all these hit and runs, the 6,000 over the last three years, not including 2023, they've only been able to, to clear 25%, like one out of four. And then, um, then, then it gets over to the court system, and you've got John Chisholm, the district attorney, who has a habit of just giving away the, these cases, which oftentimes are just dead-bang winners, but they're either afraid to go to trial or, or whatever. So it, it's just it is an epidemic. But every once in a while, there are these cases that capture the public attention. This is, um, this is one. The woman's 48-year-old woman named Heidi Schneider of Milwaukee was killed 1.45 a.m. Saturday in the 2100 block of West Canal Street. That's right by the Potawatomi Casino. Um, apparently what happened is there was a, a car and the police have just released photographs of it. It's described as a 2018 to 2020 white SUV. They believe it's a Kia Sportage. And apparently, I mean, the way this is described is the vehicle hits and kills Ms. Schneider. Somebody, I think, gets out of the car verifies, I guess, that, that they hit a person, then gets back in the car and, and drives off. And so the police are, are looking for this. Now, again, historically, hit and runs have been relatively easy to, to prosecute because you've, you've got damage to the car, there's surveillance, there's witnesses and things of the like. But in Milwaukee, we've done a terrible, terrible job of, of catching hit and run drivers. And like I say, once they get caught, then they get into the court system. And if they get charged, you've got a DA's office, which just pretty much is, is willing to give these cases away. Um, this is one that's caught public attention. The Milwaukee police have released surveillance photos of the vehicle. I'll send it out on Twitter. But um, this is one where we, we've just – look, I don't know that prosecuting the people who do this will stop hit and runs. I don't know that. But I do know that not prosecuting vigorously the people that do this, it, it's th- that doesn't work. And so hopefully they'll be able to catch this person, and hopefully the district attorney's office will be able to charge them with what they did, which is hit and run resulting in death, which is a 25-year felony, and they'll be able to stick this to them instead of giving the case away like they typically do. But anyhow, the surveillance photos of that vehicle are now out. 